0: I hadn't intended to preach on this, but since I've heard the reading three times, I read it, of course, earlier in the week. Let me tell you how I write my sermons, just so you know this. On Sunday afternoon, I take a nap. And before I take my nap, I read the lessons or the readings for the next week. So this afternoon, I will read the readings for the third Sunday of Easter. Although I won't be here then, I'll explain that later, but I'll read them for the fourth Sunday of Easter. And then I'll sort of chew on it for a while, and then I'll take some notes in the week. And then on Saturday, I write it. So you know I never read it, in, except for parts. So I just have it here like your blankie. And the whole building is littered with copies. So if I lose one, I can find one. Anyway, in the reading from Acts, there's a description of how the church was when Luke describes it in the community that he's from in the book of Acts. And there is what some have referred to as uh, the primitive communism of the early church. So let me just, those of you who have problems with this, let me put your mind at rest. This is not about any preferred form of handling your stuff, okay? It's about what they did there, and the best research uh, of the early church of that period, which is within the, the first century and early second century, was is that it, uh, the way in which the communities of faith handled this relationship to possessions differed from place to place. But Luke is making a point that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with your stuff. Although in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts there is more reference to the issues of economic justice and equity than any other gospel writer. So he is very concerned about this and is uh, wishing to make the readership, Luke wrote Acts, uh, know at least in his place and in the places nearby, this is what happened. And the reason for this is that it is in one sense a metaphor for the way the early Christians understood who they were and how they should live because they believed that through the words and works of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection, the world has been transformed and that we are living now in a new creation. And so, (coughs) excuse me, what we're going to do as Christian people is to model how we understand that. And what understand that means is everybody is in. And all the possessions are there to benefit everybody. And it's a metaphor for understanding that the covenant that God established with the Jews is not exclusive to them. And so this is a comment to the Jews That now they, although they have been God's chosen people and understand this, so is everybody else. So are the Gentiles. And therein, and worthy of the generosity of the Christian community. And this is how we understand the way in which we move forward with this. So Luke is very concerned about how we handle our stuff. And that we need to exercise stewardship over the way in which we handle our possessions and what we do with them, you know? This is a personal uh, bias, not necessarily a prejudice, but I think dot-com millionaires need to give a lot of their money away, that it's righteous for them to do that, you know? I could live easily on $100 million. So uh, the fact of the matter is, is that there's a lot that they could... Do And many are. And many are. So this isn't some sort of uh, criticism. But it's always important to hold that out to people. You know. So what I'm going to talk about today really is, this is the second Sunday of Easter, and every second Sunday of Easter, we read the Gospel about what we refer to as Doubting Thomas. It says, Thomas uh, called the twin... So if you read it in Greek, it's Didymus is his name, and Didymus means twin. So there's some twin to Thomas out there somewhere, and we don't know what he was doing or how he was operating, but uh, there's some Didymuses in uh, early Christianity. The one that I'm the most familiar with is Didymus the Blind, who I think was a heretic. I'm not sure. But in any case, his name was Didymus. So Didymus the Blind had a twin who was around there somewhere as well. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the gospel later. But I I was thinking this week, how should I preach about the whole issue of doubt and skepticism in our own time? And we are facing, we're in a culture now that uh, has an enormous amount of skepticism towards the practice of religion. And uh, there's many who believe that people who are religious are nuts. And all religious people are tarred with that brush, whether it's true or not. So I thought that maybe the location for this would be the issues between science and religion and how we understand this. And so some of this in the uh, public discourse you may have heard about. Let me just say that I have become very interested, I've said this before, in quantum physics. I know absolutely nothing about quantum physics. I had to take Algebra one three times to pass out of it in high school. I was never interested in math. Or for that matter, arithmetic. But you know what I learned? You know, I learned about how to handle numbers keeping the books for my grandfather's business. I learned how to do arithmetic in my head. Uh, You probably could have guessed if you knew anything about my life that I was headed for trouble in this area when I was in grade school because my mother got me a tutor to help me with long division. Long division. Oy, 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 oy. But I managed to get through that by another route. So that was helpful to me in any case to learn how to do that. So the quantum, there are more, and I'm not talking about a ginormous number here, but there are more quantum physicists who are believers than people in the biological sciences. In fact, all of the well-known critics who have science backgrounds, who have written books that have an enormous readership, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, all of these people are in the life sciences. And the reason is, is because biology is messy. And coming to grips with the whole issue of how we understand the evolutionary processes of God at work in the creation and all of this kind of thing produce... Uh, a more radical form of skepticism. But the purpose of reading this gospel is to tell everyone when we hear it that this is not new, nor is this the product of the Enlightenment, which began in the late 17th and early 18th century. But it's been around from the jump. And there have always been people who've been skeptics about this or deniers of the resurrection, people who think this is all silly, in the time just after the Christ event itself. So that's an important thing. The reason quantum physicists and other physicists and people who are in related fields uh, often become, uh, become or are believers is because of the beauty of the order of the creation of the universe. And also, most of these people are mathematicians and they understand what an equation is that's beautiful. So that when you see it, you say to yourself, this is a beautiful equation. Pokinghorn had a... John Polkinghorne is an Anglican priest who was a world-famous particle physicist. And he then, after 25 years in that field, he said, by the time you're 40 or 45, you're done. You've done your best work in that field. I always have felt a vocation to the ordained ministry and he became a priest. But he talks a lot about science and religion and he gives lectures on this. He had a colleague who was a mathematician and he said, you know, beautiful equations are important. Many times you can create a beautiful equation that will have no purpose, no, apply, no, no application. But an ugly equation will never have an application. So the equations that are used for purposes beyond just themselves, there's something called pure mathematics, uh, are most of the time beautiful. And that's important. So it's the order of things that appeals uh, to this even people who are in the quantum world, which is, you've got to read about or listen to some lectures because it's... John Polkinghorne wrote the little... I recommend to you these little books that are published by the Oxford University Press called A Very Short Introduction. And they've got a very short introduction just about anything. Game theory. You know, all of these different kinds of things but you can have a very short introduction to Hegel. You can have a very short introduction to Thomas Aquinas. You could have a very short introduction to the Bible, to Anglicanism, and to quantum physics. And John Polkinghorne wrote that little book, which is very, very important. So, Alan Jones, the former dean of Grace Cathedral, who retired three or four years ago, maybe a bit longer, wrote a book uh, called Reimagining Christianity, How to um, Keep Your Faith Without Losing Your Mind. And so in the course of the book, he talks about the relationship between evolution, which is, you know, a flashpoint, and creationism, which is a view of things that is mainly held by uh, people in the fever swamps of evangelical Christianity. Maybe not all people in the fever swamps. They may have stepped away from the fever swamps, but they still think it's useful. The creationist wants to talk about meaning and gets it confused with science. The evolutionist wants to talk about science and can 't help sneering at religion, many biologists seem to think that the theory of evolution, revised or otherwise, denies the possibility of design and order that they point to the possibility of God. The creationists respond negatively, and neither side understands the other. I have to confess that until recently i wasn 't really aware of the reductionist assumptions of the evolutionist establishment. I'd always had a benign view of scientists, so I'm surprised to find myself thinking that creationists have a point, not a scientific one, but a theological one. Scientists, as scientists, have no business affirming or denying purpose in the universe. And people of faith err when they come to scientific conclusions based on creedal or biblical texts. I've told you about John Walton's book on the uh, creation in Genesis, the creation stories. John Walton teaches at Wheaton College, so he's no wild-eyed liberal. If you know anything about Wheaton College, right? It's one of the centerpieces of intelligent evangelicalism, but no, no doubt about evangel- Billy Graham went to Wheaton College. So he writes this book and he said, you need to know that the first two chapters of Genesis uh, do not constitute a scientific text. And you also need to know that the Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. And so the creation stories in Genesis flow out of a completely different thought world and community and are in a language that we do not know. Most of us, some of us know a little bit. But the fact of the matter is we need to understand this so that we can come to grips with the meaning of the description in Genesis about the creation. And his view is that it's the story of the creation of a temple. And the descriptions that exist in the original languages describe the earth being created as God's temple. And so on the Sabbath day, or Sunday for us, this is where God dwells on the day of rest. God is here. And so we understand that in the creation, God is present in God's space, And that we need now to understand how then must we live and what must we do. So, Alan Jones goes on to say, My experience with scientists is that they are not so much arrogant as ignorant of how to play the game of theology. Some think it's a game so silly that it's not worth playing. Yet they cannot help but dabble in the meaning to which science points. I'm reading a book now by a man named Jaron Lanier. And the title of the book is You Are Not a Gadget. You Are Not a Gadget. He was one of the creators of virtual reality and one of the creators of the internet. And so this book constitutes a critique of how things have been for the last 25 years. 30 years and how we might wish to think about this he clearly is not a believer a theist but he endlessly talks at least as far as I've gotten in the book about mystery and he speaks about mystery in a way that in to my mind is what uh, the definition of mystery is and that's not something that is obscured or always obscure, or hidden. It is something that is infinitely knowable. And how we understand that is through prayer, through the liturgy, and through prayer and meditation. Where we in some way join ourselves to God. And we begin to see this great mystery in a different way. So, Mark Bruce will appreciate this, but there is a, Uh, interesting conversation of several pages about MIDI the uh, software for music and how it was created and he goes on he's a musician himself and he talks on and on about the note and how we understand how it's been affected by this software which is ubiquitous in the musical world it's very interesting and uh, those of you who are more technologically apt than I am, for sure, may find that book a good read. What Alan Jones is saying in his book, in his, this quote, is that he is moving us, and we've always been like this as Anglican Christians, by the way, uh, away from either-or thinking, or some would describe black-and-white thinking, to both ends. And Anglicanism has always rested in the historical creation of Anglicanism, has always existed in that middle place. My uh, teacher, Urban Holmes, who was my, one of my teachers at Neshota House, used to speak about Anglicans as being liminal. And what he meant by that is you every day are in a liminal location when you're crossing from one room to the other through the threshold, the doorway. And so you're not here and you're not there, you're, you're moving in some way. And so when you understand that, you begin to say, well, this could be both and. There are some things that are both true. Have you ever found yourself in a condition where, in terms of the uh, storm and stress of your life, you have been in a situation where you have felt yes and no at the same time? Have you ever had that feeling or that thought? And so when you think about that experientially, I think we can understand in some way what we mean when we describe the issue of both and. So finally, to the gospel. Uh, Here is the beginning, which is uh, in one sense just as important as the Doubting Thomas part, but that's the main focus of this Sunday. Jesus appears. Now, Jesus, in both cases, comes through a door that's shut. Let's just not go there, okay? You can think what you want about it. Alan Jones, in a lecture I heard, I'm bringing him up a lot, said, you know, I don't care whether you believe in the virgin birth or not. I'm not so sure that I do, but I don't want to lose all those pictures. (laughs) Me neither. This is unrelated to it, but uh, the last time Nancy and I were in Italy, we went to the French church near the Piazza Navona on a Saturday. And we went there because in the French church is Caravaggio's painting of the calling of Matthew, famous artist. And we went into the church. It also happened to be right next door to one of the premier ecclesiastical haberdashery places in the city of Rome. But that was not the main reason for being there. And anyway, I I thought to myself, I don't want to, I, I, I would like a pair, but I can't have either purple socks or red socks because I'm not a bishop or a cardinal. But he told me that there are a lot of businessmen and lawyers who come into this store and buy the red or purple socks, right? It's one of the ways to keep people off balance in an interview, isn't it, when they look down and see red socks. You know, I mean, that's kind of cool, in my opinion. So we saw the calling of Matthew, which is a wonderful painting. And I thought to myself, you know, it really doesn't matter whether or not he's depicting something that actually happened. It does the trick. It does the trick. And we don't want to let that go, and me neither. So maybe it's both and. Jesus appears the first time to the apostles without Thomas. And he breathes on the apostles that are there and he bestows on them the spirit of God. In the ancient world, when you did that, it was to give them your spirit, right? So that's why for years people, and still do, refer to someone who's died as expiring I don't know how many of you have been around people who have died. I am a clergyman, so I've had more than one experience of this. And often they, they expire, they breathe their last. So they go, the breath comes out of them. So in the ancient world, that was the spirit departing. So, when Jesus breathes on them, he would have used the word ruach, which means wind. He breathes on them and he then empowers them with something that's called in the church the power of the keys the authority to bind and to loose sins. So, here he gives the power of the keys to the apostles. Elsewhere in the Gospels, he gives the power of the keys to Peter to bind and to loose. And elsewhere in the Gospels, he gives the power of the keys to the people of God, the apostles and the people of God, the disciples. And that means that you and I need to be in the forgiveness business because we've been given the power. And most of the time in our lives when we do that, it's with another person or persons that we believe uh, has wronged us. The ability to forgive, to agree that you will not seek revenge for the bad things that have been done to you. So Desmond Tudor was asked one time in an interview, well, what does the person you forgive have to do? And he said, confess, confess. And my own personal experience is confession is good for the soul. So you and I ought to be in the forgiveness business in that sense. The opposite of faith, which is partly uh, can be defined as understanding that the ambiguities and uncertainties and anxieties of life are going to come into surer and clearer focus. And as we engage ourselves with the processes of God in our own lives, we will be able to see more clearly. Right? And you will begin to see that perhaps the problems that you have now are not as hard problems as they once were. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of of faith is certainty. And don't we all seek this? We want it to be the way we want it to be. Certain. And we can get our hands around it. But things aren't like that with human beings and with the creation. So faith is a a powerful thing. Jesus says to Thomas, Do you believe me because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have come to believe. Not to believe, have come to believe. And that implies... The work of the processes of God in all people, in all human beings, as we seek to know the truth. None of us can know the truth, but all of us must seek the truth. That's both our responsibility and our obligation, in one sense, to do that, and our privilege. So as we move through the second week of Easter, look at those areas of your life where you may be tempted to lapse into cynicism, skepticism, or outright despair. Know that today's gospel is in the lectionary every year because it is the acknowledgement that all of us must come to terms on a regular basis with doubt and uncertainty and that we shouldn't fear this but ask God to help us Move forward and come to believe. Amen.